I was in my suit and tie and fancy shoes, and I was in the elephant barn, mucking out the stalls. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast whose host keeps mentioning red pandas in interviews at zoos that don't even have them, the Rasafari Podcast. That's right, y'all. We are still going through the amazing experiences that I got to have while I was gigging down in Florida earlier this year, and... um. There are no red pandas at zoos in Florida, but uh, boy, they do keep coming up in these interviews. Kind of crazy. It's also crazy that by the time this episode is out, my time at Northern Stage in Vermont will have come to an end. Yep, another gig down, but uh, man, it's hard to believe that, especially since I'm still releasing episodes from my last gig. Florida was so good to me, but don't you worry, New England has been good too, and you will hear some episodes from up here in the near future. And as for what's next for me, well, I'll be doing Million Dollar Quartet some more. First, back out on the national tour, which is going out in just a little under a month, I believe. And then I'll be spending the winter doing it in Wilmington, Delaware at Delaware Theatre Company. I'm really excited to keep getting to do this show and be back. It still just feels so good to be back after the insane hiatus that uh, COVID wrought upon the theater and music industries. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling good about all the things. And I, I kind of just wanted to let you know that because I like you because we're friends, right? No. Hey, nobody asked you, Ren. And look, if you don't get that little joke right there, you really need to make sure that you go back and listen to the most recent episode of Zoo News. It's the episode from September 10th, and I guarantee you want to listen to it because along with all the cool, you know, zoo and conservation news stories, it definitely features the birth of a new sound effect, the one that you just heard. And uh, eh, if I say so myself, I think it's pretty hilarious. And I might as well take the time since we're talking about a recent episode to remind you to hit subscribe if you haven't yet. Give the show a five-star rating and possibly even write a review, especially if you're using the Apple Podcast app or iTunes. It really helps people find the show. And of course, make sure you're following along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Safari, on TikTok at Raw Safari Pod, and uh, the website's rawsafari.com. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash you get cool things, I get funds that go into keeping this bad boy rolling. Plus, anyone who's a patron of the show is automatically allowed to tell everyone that you're my friend. And finally, uh, if you don't want to or can't support the pod financially, but are wondering what you can do to support me with it, hey, you could always, uh, you know, put a little post up on the social medias, let people know about it. Word of mouth does a lot of good for podcasts. And my ego. So today I am bringing you not one, but two interviews from the Central Florida Zoo. Now, the Central Florida Zoo, you will be shocked to learn, is located in Central Florida. And it's a really cool place. It's one of those very naturalistic looking zoos. Lots of really beautiful landscaping as well as really cool and different enclosures. I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, even though it was a little rushed because I had an absolutely crazy day that day. But you'll, you'll, you'll hear about it. You'll hear about it in, in the episode. But I was able to sit down with two awesome people and bring those interviews to you. The first of them is the director of the Central Florida Zoo, Stephanie Williams. And the second is the senior hoofstock keeper, Chris Torge. Whenever I end up doing an episode that features not one, but two interviews, 
It's my hope that I can make it really show different sides of the zoo and the industry in general. And I feel like this episode really accomplishes that well. Stephanie and I talk about all kinds of stuff dealing with leadership and running a zoo and different things that you have to think about when you're at the top of a zoo. We don't talk about a ton of animals, but uh, don't worry, you do get your poop story. And then Chris and I are just nerding out about animals. Although I will tell you, we do also talk about leadership a bit. As y'all know, that is a topic I am incredibly passionate about. But yeah, in this episode, you are going to get to hear about a very special rhinoceros, uh, a couple of really cool giraffes, some amazing information about an eastern indigo snake conservation project that's being done at the zoo, and so much more. Also, before Chris worked at the Central Florida Zoo, he actually spent time working at Disney's Animal Kingdom. So, uh, you know, I did a little prying. We talked a little bit about what that experience was like as well. All in all, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in these two interviews, and I'm excited to share them with you. But first, I'll share this ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. All right, let's get ready to spend some time at the Central Florida Zoo with Stephanie Williams and Chris Torge. Oh, and to save time, I decided to play both interviews simultaneously. So uh, enjoy. Um, my name, my is, name Chris is Stephanie Torch. Williams. I am, I am the zoo oh, director. Okay, I kid, I kid. We're going to start with the interview with Stephanie. So here we go. All right, so why don't you tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here? Perfect. Um, my name is Stephanie Williams. I am the zoo director for the Central Florida Zoo and Botanical Gardens, and we are located in Sanford, Florida. Yeah, it's very exciting to be here. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Thank Appreciate you for being here. Yeah, it's a great, great zoo. I had a really lovely time walking around. Awesome. Um, yeah, I dig it. So it is my understanding that you have been here for... A lot of time and worn a lot of hats, although I now see that you're not wearing any hats. So, right. You know. <laughs> I was hoping for a big director hat. Oh, but. man, yeah. <laughs> I usually have my baseball hat on. Um. <laughs> so, so tell me about, uh, about your time here. What um, all have you done? Yeah. So I started back in 99, and I was a zoo teacher, um, which is part of our education department. Okay. So tell yeah. me about zoo teachers. That's so, cool. yeah. So it was a lot of fun um, doing that role. We um, teach all of the school programs during the year. So any type of field trip, um, we will teach those programs that are on site as well as we travel to the schools. So if the school can't come to us, we go to them. We bring animals to the schools. And then um, during the summer, like right now, we're teaching summer camp. So that position is basically year-round education all day. Nice. So I have a question for you because um, I hear about those types of roles a lot. And um, now that you've both been in that role and now oversee everything, um, I'm curious – I know that most keepers end up with like a degree in biology mm -hmm. and I know that, um, not education. So how do you go about finding or training keepers to be good at that side of things? The teaching side, mm -hmm. um, it comes, I think with just naturally being able to go out there and do it. And so one of the roles that all of our keepers participate in is education chats, shows, encounters, 
Um, it might be a VIP tour for a board member or a community leader. And so it just naturally you work with your seniors in the department and you kind of grow into talking to folks. But it is one of the things that we do look for in the job interview is your ability to interact with folks. We want to make sure that our keepers um, and our animal staff, it, regardless of what department, you're wanting to interact with the visitors that are here. I love that because there's there's the rumor, and it has been squashed a lot. A lot of people I've talked to on this podcast have already said this, but it bears repeating. You can no longer just be an animal person hiding from people and have an active role as a zookeeper at most facilities because you need to educate. You need to at least be able to get over it to show that passion, right? Correct. Yeah. So one of the things that we're going to ask is how do you feel about talking with the public? How do you feel? May not We may not put a microphone on you. We may not put you on a stage in front of thousands of people, but we're going to ask you to go out. And if, if you're outside and you're walking through the park, you need to be comfortable talking to folks and answering questions. That's that's cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that it's those encounters that led to this podcast. You know, me talking to keepers at various zoos and them saying such cool stuff that I was like, someone should be recording this. I have gear. <laughs> yeah. They have a lot of knowledge and a lot Absolutely. of behind the scenes and history, especially with the animals that they work with. So it's, it's really neat to kind of take the time to do one-on-one -on -one with them. Absolutely. Very cool. So you started off there and then talk me through the next step. <laughs> so then the next step was our volunteer manager. So okay. I um, helped to oversee the volunteer department, which is a huge, we rely so heavily on our volunteers that help from guest interactions to special events to group projects. Um, so I did that for a little bit and moved on to the education manager role for the department and then the director role for the department and now zoo director. So. Awesome. That's, that's really cool. Um, and you must love it here. Yes. <laughs> so, so tell me what it's like seeing this zoo grow for that long because so many keepers bounce from facility to facility. Mm -hmm. And then when they get their dream job, they stay in it forever. Yeah. So I think you have some unique perspective here. What was this place like in 99 compared to now? And, and how much growth have you seen? How much change have you seen? All that good stuff. Yeah, it's been... Um, so the footprint has remained the same, but what's happened within the footprint has been exciting to see changes. Um, when I first started, we didn't have the splash ground. And then, you know, a few years and that was built and to see the families love and, and enjoy it. And we recognize now we need like three of them because it gets so <laughs> crowded in the summertime. Um, but that's that's been the, the fun of it. And then seeing different habitats, you know, they'll change over time and you'll get animals that will leave and new animals will come in and it's OK, well, what can we do with that space now? Um, you know, if we're not going to have a leopard in it, what can we put, um, inside that space that's suitable, um, for the welfare of the animal. So that part's been exciting to see the, the changes there. Very cool. Uh, you know, we talk, you talk about the splash ground a little bit. Um, and I, I, I used to have a real problem with things like trains when they don't go by the animals and splash grounds and yes. stuff like that. Uh, because, um, first of all, I'm an adult male. And if I accidentally wander into one, people look at me funny. Uh, <laughs> and second of all, because, um, you know, that space that could be animals or education or whatever, as I push my glasses up and, you know, right. feel extra nerdy. Um, you know, on the podcast, I've talked to a couple of people who have changed my mind about it a little bit, but I know not everyone listens to every episode. So tell me why you're bragging about a splash ground at what to maybe a lot of people listening should be an educational facility. And, and that, why don't you have a red panda there instead? I, I like red pandas. <laughs> but, you know, seriously, like, like what would your answer be to something like that? So for us, it's important to recognize that it's about the entire experience. And if you look at it from the perspective of a young child um, who's three, four, five, they may, you know, they're going to come to the the zoo with their family. They're going to walk around the zoo. They're going to get to see animals up close, but they also want to have these fun experiences. The splash ground allows for that creativity, that fun, the energy. Um, but then it, it makes that experience the whole day. So you remember the different pieces of it. You remember seeing your favorite animal, 
but you also remember getting to play in the water when it was 90 degrees outside, right? Um, and riding the train. So many people love the train. Um, it goes around a nature area and we do have hide and seek animals around it, but, um, some might say, well, that's not really exciting, but it does go towards our mission and that it's also revenue generating. Right. Right, And so that's very important. All of these experiences that tie into families enjoying an entire day at the zoo helps us to generate revenue so that we can go out and do conservation programs. We can provide more education programs. We can go out into the community and do free programs um, for groups that may not be able to afford to come to the zoo. So, Right. Makes total sense. Thank you for uh, elucidating that fact. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I, I love to, uh, to delve into weird things sometimes. So you started as a keeper, right? Like, I know. Well, just as you teacher. Okay. Yeah. Teacher. Well, yeah. mm-hmm. So how much, I was gonna say, so how much husbandry and stuff did you do? Um, so for the education department, we have an entire separate, um, animal area ambassador animals right, right. Um, is what we refer to and so we do have experience with handling cleaning up after feeding um it wasn't my full-time job but i definitely was trained in order to help the staff that does take care of those animals so we have i'm trained to work with over 50 animals they're just the smaller size from your opossums to your owls to your green wing macaws to your little inverts like scorpions and hissing cockroaches, which people are like, you work with cockroaches. I'm like, yeah, they're important too. They have they their, their place. Um, and so, yeah, we do get to understand what all goes into um, caring for those animals, whether it's diet prep, the husbandry aspect, making sure that their, their habitat um, is has everything that they need down to providing enrichment for those animals, even though they're behind the scenes, they still get just the same quality of care that you would see out in the zoo if you were walking around. So now that you're a director and all fancy and stuff and wearing all those hats, um, do you miss it? Do you miss like the animal stuff? I know you're obviously and obviously you are having a huge impact on the animals that are here, but do you miss actually like being in there and giving a hug to a cockroach or, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Some days. Yes. So I will take time to go walk towards the back of the animal ambassador area and say hi to the birds. And every once in a while I get to bring an animal out, which is exciting for a group. Yeah. So some, I maintain my training to make sure that if need, I could, you know, definitely go through. And if someone said, hey, we really need this animal to be brought out to talk to this group, then I'm able to do that. Um, But I do miss it. I I miss doing that on a regular basis. I bet. Yeah. So um, what's your background? What got you to being an animal teacher and then all these other (laughs) fancy things? So um, I wanted I knew I wanted to do ecology. So wildlife ecology. Originally, I thought I wanted to do field work. Um, but I started working for a museum, the, um, University of Florida natural history museum, and I worked in their fish department. Yeah. Bottling dead fish. Oh yeah. I bet I I found something that you don't miss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so specimens, um, so we would label the specimens, um, that were being studied and they would you know, go into the collection and enter all that information into the computer. Right. Um, but I was also asked to, um, formulate some education, um, information for their website and for the department. And so that kind of got me into this education side. I was like, Hmm, I really like that. And so, um, I went on and got my master's in science ed. Nice. And at the same time I was doing my master's, I ended up getting a job here. And so did both at the same time and just really found that I enjoyed the teaching aspect. But the beauty of it is that I got to work with the animals and also teach about them. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's really cool. That that's kind of the dream. If I were ever to uh, to hop into working at a zoo, I would want to have the ability to do both because I'm a performer. I love crowds, but also animals. (laughs) That's kind of what what I try to do with the podcast, obviously. So, you know, that's very cool. Um, So what is the hardest thing about being a zoo director? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, it's the unexpected 
you know, every day there's, there's just going to be something that's unexpected. No day is ever the same. And so you wake up and you think you have your day planned <laughs> out. <laughs> and then by, you know, 10 o'clock, it's all gone to. <laughs> so um, that, that's been, I think, a challenging part is you just never know what's going to be expecting. You know, you don't know what's going to happen that day. And some days nothing happens and you're like, wait, what? this was a pretty calm day. <laughs> I need more of those, but no, it's, it's a lot of fun. I like the unexpected. I enjoy, I really enjoy walking the park and, um, really getting to see everything in action. I don't believe that our role should be sitting at a desk and in an office and never step, you know, if you don't step foot into the zoo and you don't see what's happening day to day, how can you improve it and work hard? So now the flip of that question, what's the best part? What's your favorite part of being a zoo director? Also the unexpected, right? Okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's um I like I I really like seeing the changes. Um, but I also enjoy the events, the programming, bringing new things for the community to participate in. So if we're launching a new event, that gets me excited. I'm like, yes, we have new programs. We've got this coming up. Um, I think that's what drives us to move forward. Makes sense. What kind of thought goes into a new program? Like the first time that you decide to do, I don't know, a boo at the zoo or a brew at the zoo or a poo at the zoo, anything that rhymes with zoo right. has become a thing, um, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, like what kind of thought goes into that? Or is it literally just one of those things where somebody's like, I had an idea and you're like, run with it. See what, see what you can make happen. I think, yeah, normally it's, it's like, okay, what's the logistics? look like? Um, how many, you know, are we selling tickets? Is this a free program? Is it what, who's it benefiting? How is it going to impact the animals? That's always an important question is, all right, if we're doing an evening event, what's that impact going to look like? Um, on the staff, on the animals, things like that. But also, what's the value to it? You know, is it educational? It should always have some type of educational right, um, right, piece yeah. to it, right? And then how is that going to benefit the zoo? Does it support our mission is another, you know, great question that we're going to want to answer. If it's not supporting our mission, then why are we doing it, right? Makes sense. So um, I... I, I'm curious. I don't know if you know this, but there are a couple attractions other than this zoo in the same rough area, about 30, 40 minutes away. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I drove past this place called the Magic Kingdom and a place called Universal. And, right. and there are a lot of attractions in this area. Yeah. Um, are they competition? Are they... You know, do they help by bringing people in? What what effect does being in Central Florida have on the Central Florida the zoo other than giving it its name? Right. <laughs> um, and so I wouldn't say I don't think that we ever really consider it a competition. I think um, we're in a different category in terms of the well one the attendance that those those attractions are going to see um we average between you know 280 300,000 people a year which is not near as what <laughs> right. you know some of the other larger area you know attractions are going to see but also we tend to see a lot of locals um so the surrounding counties will come it's a nice day visit it's a nice day trip you can come walk around the zoo, enjoy everything that there is, and it's a good day trip. But we have been in seeing a lot more visitors from out of state, from, you know, if they're wanting a break from the larger attractions, our facility is a nice facility to say, okay, I need to take a deep, you know, let's take a break away from the the energy that you get from visiting those larger areas and and just have a nice stroll around the zoo. It's quaint. I love the old Florida feel to it. It's got a lot of trees with the hanging moss and it just has this natural Florida feel, which I think is very different from all of the other places in central Florida. It, it absolutely is. Nothing amniotronic talked to me at all today. It was quite lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but beyond that, I was actually going to ask, so this is a very, um, I want to come up with a term for this because there are certain zoos that are like this. Central Florida is like this. Nashville is like this. But it feels like an indoor-outdoor zoo in the sense that even though you're outdoors, you're under a canopy of trees mm -hmm. and it's beautiful and there's um, 
a lot of the pathways are like wooden, like old wooden bridges, not yeah. old in a bad way, but like old school looking, right. obviously yep. new and safe, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and it's, it's very cool and very different. I was curious how intentional that is. Um, so we've tried to maintain that feel to it. Um, will it always maintain it through the future? You know, we we try to keep that, that look and feel to it. Um, but it does become challenging at, you know, wood and Florida does not do well for long periods of time. Fair. <laughs> um, and also, you know, the standards for zoos and aquariums have changed over the years, larger habitats, um, multi-species exhibits. And so as we look to um, grow our master plan and um, grow our footprint and add more programs, we're going to have to look at that too. And right. so is that going to, you know, hopefully we'll be able to use the same footprint, modify it, not have to re, you know, we don't want to be taking down trees. It has that natural feel. So how do we work with it? Makes sense. And, um, you know, speaking of your master plan, how far out do y'all look and, and can you tell me anything that's coming next? Yeah. So we try to plan, um, at least up to five years, um, out. And so what are the major projects that we're looking to do within that time frame? right now? We're looking to redesign our, um, train. So we're bringing in a new train. Um, we're hoping to do a new aviary in the future. So a feeding aviary. Nice. Um, so that's exciting. Um, and then we want to modify some of our, um, smaller habitats and kind of encompass them into those multi-species areas that we talked about. That's really exciting. It's gotta be cool to be looking yeah. forward to some of those. You have to look forward to, to planning and growing. You can't, can't stay stagnant, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, there are some really great exhibits here, though. The uh, the FOSA or FUSA exhibit. Mm -hmm. uh, I really love the little tunnel between the two areas and stuff. Like, there's some really small and almost subtle, but really nice exhibits here. Yeah, that um, that was intentional. The tunnel between the two, it allows, it also connects to the back area and so kind of allows for a round robin nice. and the animals are able to then be moved from one area to the other so that they're not always in the same space. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Um, so I have a question that might be slightly inspired by real life events. <laughs> I was walking this zoo 20, maybe 40 minutes ago now and it was beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky that wasn't, wasn't white. Uh, it is pouring out right now. I am regretting leaving my poncho in the car. <laughs> um, but these things happen and this is Florida. So, but what does that, what, um, what does the weather and the unexpectedness and the suddenness of storms, not to mention in central Florida hurricanes, I know we're not right mm -hmm. on the coast, but we're about what, 40 miles from the coast, I would guess. Yeah. Um, what impact does all of that have on your planning and just on the day to day of the zoo? So definitely, I mean, planning wise, we always have to take into consideration thunder, lightning, um, weather changes very quick around here. And so from like the, you know, the zoo director's perspective, how are we keeping people safe? How are we keeping the animals safe? Our staff safe? Right. Um, we do have weather related protocols, um, that we can put into action if we need to. Um, we work really well with the emergency management here in Seminole County, especially if we're going to have severe weather like hurricanes. We have protocols for that. We've got a process that we follow if we need to start um, shifting animals or moving them to other locations. We can do that. Um, so, yeah, it's a big process, weather. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. I would... I would not, you know, I, I, I was down here for the, for, uh, hurricane Elsa, but she wasn't very scary no. uh, when she hit, but, um, <laughs> I would actually be fascinated to like stand and watch that kind of thing happening. I'm sure it would be yeah. scary and terrifying and all the things, but, um, the, the work that goes into that, I know must be incredible and, and, you know, kudos to y'all for making that so seamless all the time. Yeah, it's, um, we, we get that question. Um, what's it like, you know? And so we do have, you know, our time leading up to a storm coming in, you know, do we have the extra food on hand? Because we have to think about, okay, so if we're shut down, what, what do we already have on hand of transportation, fuel, everything's cut off. Nobody can get on property because a tree fell down. What's our, what's our, 
process like, right? right? And so we do have a ride out team um, that will stay here um, made up from different departments that can help oversee the animals, make sure everything is safe and secure um, until we can get the staff. It's safe for everybody to come back onto zoo property, but we've got to make sure we have generators and food and fuel and all of that goes into it. (laughs) Yeah, makes sense. Y'all, I've been in Florida for five and a half weeks, and I mean, I've spent a lot of time here before this. But even with that, I am still literally shocked. I'm staring out the window right now. I I just... it is unlike anywhere else. I mean, it is the only semi-tropical area of the United States, and and I understand that logically, but this is fascinating. It was 17 minutes ago. It was beautiful and we started our interview and now it is Pouring. torrential out there. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's really interesting to think about those types of logistics and, and yeah, stuff. And that I walked back here. So now I don't oh, want to, no. <laughs> I'll keep talking. <laughs> so you mentioned it and it's obviously a huge focus of this podcast and of zoos and that's why it goes so well hand in hand but what kind of conservation stuff are you all doing here so we have um a program called the orient center for indigo snake conservation and so that's one of the largest conservation programs that we're involved with um it has to do with the eastern indigo snake which is a threatened species um and we are working to reproduce those guys um and then helping to re-release them in areas that they have, um, they're no, you know, no longer found in. And so that's important for us. It's the Eastern Indigo snake is a very important animal here in Florida, Alabama, Georgia. Um, they're very important for the ecosystem that they live in. And so that's one of our, our biggest programs. We also do a striped newt um, which, you know, if you look them up, they're super cute. They really are. (laughs) Um, so we do that, um, up in North Florida and then we will partner with other, um, conservation programs like giraffes, rhinos, um, more leopards, the animals that we, um, have as our SSP, our species survival program animals, we will work then with global conservation organizations might be raising money for them. Um, it might be, you know, we're not always able, we're a smaller facility, so we can't always send our staff to participate in those types of programs. So one of the things that we can do is educate, um, hold events, raise money, donate, items for those conservation programs. And, um, do you find that a lot of your staff, even though, you know, like you said, you might not be able to send them that a lot of your staff also do participate in conservation beyond just the work at the zoo? Correct. Yeah. So we do have a lot of staff that, um, they've found their, you know, niche and, and different programs that they're, um, that they want to be part of. And so they can volunteer, um, their time doing that, or, um, they might, you know, bring, that program here to the zoo. Um, yeah, that's very cool. So, uh, tell me about the Eastern Indigo snake a little bit more. I, I love these kinds of stories. This is, this is some <laughs> of my favorite stuff. Um, so tell me a little bit more about how you're doing that and, and how that's, how that's going. Sure. Yeah. So we have a facility, um, it's offsite of, of the property that we're at today, um, in Lake County and, um, it's a breeding facility. And so we have both indoor and outdoor, um, areas for them. And so once the, the snakes, um, are hatched, um, they will grow there until a certain age where they're able to be released. And so we have these outdoor units where they basically get to learn how to be a snake and, in the wild. Right. And so they get used to the temperature and acclimation, um, of the habitat and, um, the whole, we watch them go through the breeding process. And it's very, it's, it's interesting because it's just a facility of Eastern indigo snakes, but, um, you grow to really, you know, enjoy these animals. They have, um, such unique characteristics about their life and the breeding process that they go through and the combat. So the males will combat, um, they'll fight each other for dominance over the female. It's just really, I don't know, kind of interesting. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I, I, I really love those kinds of things. Um, and as a zoo director, I'll ask you now, I, I can't speak to your zoo specifically. Uh, I've, I've done some research, but, and I hadn't seen that, but, um, in general, why do you think it is that zoos tend to not publicize that stuff as much as they do? Oh, look, it's our cute rhino's fifth birthday or whatever. Because to me, 
that stuff is important. And I know mm-hmm. that it might not be as cute and as newsworthy, especially when it's a snake. It might not be as cute to a lot of people. Right. I love them, but I, <laughs> I know, I know. But to me, I feel like so much of the anti-cap group is just people who don't understand all of the cool stuff that's happening and all of the amazing conservation work being done. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why, you know, that stuff isn't more promoted and tweeted about and check out these cool pics and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I think, um, it's a balance. It's really trying to balance everything that we do and recognizing that you do have folks that are interested in the large, the larger animals and some that are interested in the smaller. And yes, you're right that there's not everybody loves, you know, a snake and, and why is it important to the ecosystem? So I think it's finding that balance, um, being able to promote that we do this work and this work and this work. And I would agree that we have to do a better job at it. I even say that myself, like we really need to do a better job at, at showing and highlighting the work that's done behind the scenes, because when you walk around, yeah, you're not seeing everything that goes into our mission and and why we're here. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there was an article in the New York Times, an opinion piece a couple of weeks ago, and I, I did a whole episode kind of trashing it and talking about ni- nicely, but you know why I disagreed, but it was, it was very much, it was like, you know, it's time to end zoos and stuff. And she quoted Dan Ash, the president of the AZA as saying that we, ha- that there are around 50 reintroduction programs in zoos all across the mm-hmm. AZA. And I just don't think that can be right. There are so many more because just in the last year, I think I've, I've heard about 20 to 25 on my podcast yeah. and I don't think I just happened to catch half of them. I mean, maybe, but I think, I think the work that's being done is amazing and is so important. And, um, you know, can, can we go and release your lovely rhino here into the wild? No, for a lot of reasons, no. Right. But the fact that that is happening and that so many places, especially smaller zoos are focused on fixing stuff in their area, I think is beautiful. Yeah. Um, it's gotten to the point where when I walk in, like I saw this place, I saw, okay, this is a smaller zoo. My first thought was, I guarantee there is at least one cool local conservation project mm-hmm. here because that's what AZA zoos do. And right. I, I knew that there was going to be something cool. And yeah, I, I hope I'm going to keep pushing people as I interview them to, to keep publicizing this stuff more. Cause I think it's really cool and really important. Yeah. We, I mean, I, I think definitely we're, we're proud that we're able to have a local Florida, you know, conservation project that is tied to our name. I think that, you know, while we can help support global projects, we also have to be working in our own backyards. And so that is definitely important. We have to recognize that it takes everybody. We can't just go release, you know, animals into the wild and expect them to be sustainable if the habitat's not sustainable itself. Right. And so everybody's got to work together and, um, we're just really proud that we can help with this species and then also the striped newt as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is just so cool. And y'all, it stopped raining. I don't, I don't understand Florida <laughs> at all, at all. It's crazy. Um, but anyway, we're, we're pretty much at the end of our time. So I will ask you for it's time now. Don't you know? We've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no, it's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. All right. Um, I don't know. These, the probably like the grossest, I don't, I was teaching, I was doing um, a program, I think it was for fifth graders, and I was carrying like a gopher tortoise and he just started going like all over. And luckily I had like a napkin or, you know, tissue or something in my hand. And I just had to like, just, I was holding them and I just like wrapped them in this thing, but I kept on talking. I mean, you don't lose your, you know, (laughs) you just don't lose that. Um, I don't know your, your spiel or whatever. You just keep going, but there's been so many different stories. I think, you know, after hurricanes cleaning kennels and things like that is, you know, vultures are just really not, mm-mm. I don't want to ever clean that kennel again. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I like the improvised tortoise diaper though. Right. That's, yes. That's really awesome. And from that day forward, I always kept a napkin in my pocket. <laughs> you only learn once. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. All right. So tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Uh, my name is Chris Torge. I am the senior hoofstock keeper uh, here at the Central Florida Zoo. Awesome. And uh, 
Hoofstock is such an, I think, interesting area. It, it, it seems that hoofstock keepers are very much their own breed, in my experience. Uh, that is what I have found so far. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to chat about this. And uh, But I'm curious, like, tell me about your start. What made you first fall in love with animals, and why are you a zookeeper? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, it's always been a lifelong interest of mine, for, uh, learning about animals, like, Saturday morning, you know, other kids were watching cartoons. I was watching Wild America and all the nature shows on PBS. So um, <clears throat> my parents fostered my interest in animals. We always had pets growing up, dogs, cats, fish, birds, turtles, all sorts of stuff. Um, so I knew that animals would be part of my career. So uh, when college came around, I went to school for zoology. So my degree is in zoology and was able to intern at two different places during my um, my schooling, one was at the Central Park Zoo in New York City. Nice. I love Central Park. Yes. I got to work with their tropical birds, um, their penguins, and a little bit with some sea lions. So nice. that was a lot of fun. That was like the summer of 1998. And then um, a small zoo in upstate New York in Syracuse, uh, the Rosamund Gifford yes, Zoo. Yes, absolutely. That's where I got my start. Um, I got my feet wet as an intern, and that was where my first job was. Oh, that's really cool. What, uh, what did you do up there? Um, I was their indoor bird keeper for two years, and then um, a position opened up on their elephant team, and uh, I was kind of lonesome working with the birds. I was the only one on my department besides my manager, so I wanted to work in a more of a team environment, and I knew our elephant team had a lot of respect um, amongst the people at the zoo and the community. So I went out for it, and I was lucky enough to get that position, and I stayed with the Asian Elephant team for a little over three years. Okay, cool. Uh, have you have you seen the latest expansion to the elephant area up there? I've seen a lot of pictures and videos, but I have not been able to visit yet. They did a really, really nice It's job. unrecognizable to me. So yes. gorgeous. Yeah, it's so gorgeous. Uh, so what brought you to Central Florida? Um, um, more elephants. So... Um, while I was at the Rosamond Gifford Zoo working with elephants, they sent me to the principal of elephant management course, um, which was a week-long course with other elephant professionals where you get to share best practices and learn. Um, and there I met the curator of elephants at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a few workshops together, and when I came back to New York, um, she gave me a call and wanted to know if I'd come down to Florida for an interview. And it worked out well for me because my family had moved from New York to Florida several years prior. So I knew I'd kind of end up here. Um, so I was super lucky. And it was at the time when um, Disney would fly you down and put you up at a hotel and give you a car and all your meals. And I wasn't going to say no to that. <laughs> um, so they rolled out the red carpet for me. And um, I accepted a, a position with the African elephants at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And I was lucky enough to be there for... Two births, um, a lot of cool procedures, um, and I stayed there for for two years um, with the elephants there. And then I moved to uh, Animal Kingdom Lodge, and that's where I really got into hoofstock um, with that collection. Okay, very cool. Now, do you interview with Mickey directly or, uh, you know? (laughs) No, um, not at my level. Okay, fair, fair. Um, No, but I am curious. What is it like? Like, how do you interview for an elephant keeper job? Because I just think about how massive elephants are. And, you know, is it just like a normal job interview or do you actually interact with the elephants? Or, like, tell me about that. Um, they provided a job shadow for me the morning of my interview at Disney. Um, they started their day at 5 a.m. So at 5 a.m., I met the other elephant keepers, and I was in my suit and tie and fancy shoes. <laughs> and I was in the elephant barn <laughs> mucking out the stalls with the other keepers because um, I had my interview later that morning. Yo, that is some great imagery. Yes. That's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I could never wear those clothes anywhere else again. <laughs> Um, but yeah, interviewing for elephant jobs is interesting because the elephant community is very small. Right, right. So if they don't know who you are, they know who you've worked with and who your managers are and who they're, whose managers they are. And they certainly know who your elephants are. So it's a very small world. Um, but I knew I had coming from Syracuse, um, with a very respected elephant program there. I knew my bosses had put a, a good word in for me for sure. That's really cool. That's, that's so important. Um, 
I, I love hearing stuff like that. You know, I, I think so much of, cause my industry is the same way. I'm an entertainer and mm-hmm. we all get each other work, help each other out. Or if you're a jerk, tell everyone that you're a jerk. And <laughs> so, yeah, no, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Um, very cool. And then, so you switched to the lodge yes, and you switched to hoofstock. Correct. Yeah. And, um, I'm guessing giraffes and, and what else? Tell me. So animal kingdom lodge was a, it's, it is a, like a luxury room resort, about 1600 rooms, uh, about 30 acres of animal habitat surrounding the rooms. Um, giraffe are common to all of the habitats, but other than that, the animals are totally different from, um, two different types of zebra, ostrich and coli cattle, impala, Thompson's gazelle, kudu, um, Sitatunga, water buck. Oh, wow. um, this is like a real collection. Like, this is yeah, real deep. Yeah. I think we had about 25 species of hoofstock and about 40 species of birds there. I want to go stay at this lodge now, yes, possibly tonight. <laughs> amazing place. And that's really where I got all of my hoofstock knowledge. Um, with that many animals in the collection, about 300, um, there was always a, a like a yearly exam that had to happen or some hoof trimming or an unfortunate animal that was ill. So we were constantly doing veterinary procedures on the animals. And that's really where you learn a lot about um, the uh, medical aspect of taking care of hoof stock. But then also we were a breeding facility. So being able to see the baby Nyala and the baby zebra and Okapi, Red River hogs, all of that was really great knowledge um, that I was so glad I was exposed to. Yeah, that's really cool. So what is it about hoofstock for you personally? Oh, wow. See, like when I first started as a in college, I was like, I am a bird person. I would never work with a stinky mammal. And um, I found myself working with elephants. <laughs> um, and then I was like, I would never work hoofstock. And then I found myself working for hoofstock over 10 years now. Um, they've certainly grown on me. Um, it's such a variety in terms of the species. When we say hoofstock, you can talk about domestic goats or red river hogs or giant giraffe or rhinoceros. Um, so it's, it encompasses so much. Um, but I think behavior is most what I like with hoofstock and training. Um, they are very timid animals for the most part. Uh, so training hoofstock like Thompson's gazelle or Impala, which are super flighty animals, is a challenge because they are so skittish and they are so alert all the time. So that's always been a, a, something that I gravitate towards too in, in my career is training. So those always pose fun training challenges for me, for sure. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. I am a big fan of behavior, and, and I think all of that's really neat. Um, kind of a funny story. So this is all throughout season one. Um, I, I, I spoke to a bunch of people who were bird nerds, and okay. every one of them, it was the same story. Absolutely didn't want to work with birds, worked with birds, <laughs> fell in love with birds, would never leave birds. Mm-hmm. Now, you are the second person I've talked to in season two who has said, I started with birds. And got out of there. So I don't, I don't know. It's just I don't know what's happening. The birds are falling off the... <laughs> I still enjoy birds. Fair, fair. And um, like no one at the lodge likes to talk about this, but Animal Kingdom Lodge is kind of like a bird facility with some mammals. Because okay. birds outnumber the mammals there by number of species and number of individuals. So I did get my bird fix working okay. at Animal Kingdom Lodge. And also here I get to my bird fix because we have four chickens in my hoofstock collection. Chickens. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that works. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your hoofstock collection. Here. Sure. Uh, yeah, just, just tell me some animals. Let's talk some, some species, but also some individuals. Okay, we have um, our greater one-horned rhino, which is probably our best-known representative in our collection. A lot of people come to the zoo just to see him. His name is PJ. He's really, really gorgeous. He's a beautiful animal. He, he knows it. zoomies when I was over there, oh, which is so good to see. Good, good. Yeah, it's fun to watch uh, 4,000 pounds run around like it's <laughs> nothing. Um, he's a great animal. He turned 10 years old uh, in the beginning of June. Um, and he's a really relaxed rhinoceros. We do interactions with him upwards of an hour a day with the guests. Um, 
three different groups, 20 minutes a piece can come up. Um, they can interact with him by touching his sides while we um, talk about PJ, where he came from, and all about greater one-horned rhinos and conservation and their habitat. Um, so he's a, a real gem for our collection. Um, we also have our two male giraffe, Gage and Rafiki. They are really great. I, I spent some time with them today. They are great boys. And again, hungry. <laughs> yes, they're always hungry. Um, so a big theme with our collection of hoofstock here is there's a lot of guest interaction with them. So PJ, if you purchase a rhino encounter, you get to meet him. Our giraffes, um, between 10 and 3 PM every day are at their feeding station. And if they're interested, which they usually are, um, you can purchase some romaine lettuce and you can feed them right there. Um, and what's interesting about our feeding station is that we don't have a platform. You're not up by their heads. So while you're down by their hooves and you realize just how massive these animals are that you could walk underneath their belly and not touch it. Um, so they're, they're just giants and kids and people, everyone really enjoys seeing them from, from that perspective. Totally. Yes. This was the third time that I have ever been at the bottom of a giraffe mm -hmm. and it was as awe-inspiring as the first time. Um, you, you get so used to being up with them and, and seeing their little heads right next to you. And yeah. it's like, it's just a totally different perspective. It is so cool to have a giraffe bend over and take food and you're reaching your hand all the way up and it's still bending over really far because it's a 17 foot animal mm -hmm. and it's, it is really stunning. I remember the first time I got to go behind the scenes in a giraffe barn and see a giraffe from that perspective and it, I, I will never forget that feeling. But like I said, it hasn't changed. Every time mm -hmm. I'm down there, I'm like, what are you doing up there? <laughs> yes. Even Rafiki, he's our male, one of our males. Um, when he lies down in the yard and when giraffe lie down, they always keep their head and neck up. He's still 12, 13 feet tall when he's like that. He's still just a massive, massive animal. He's the biggest giraffe by far that I've ever worked with. He's just a really big guy. Um, so that's our giraffe. And then we have um, some pig species in our collection. We have two female warthogs. We have Big Girl and her daughter, Peanut. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's some good naming right there. Yes. And um, they're very recognizable from a certain Disney movie. So people always know that they're warthogs. Um, <laughs> and true to their nature, we keep a big mud wallow in there for them. And they are always wallowing in their mud. Um, they're very alert animals, but pretty relaxed. Um, the boardwalk in front of their exhibits, you can get pretty close to them. And sometimes you can catch them having a nap right there. Um, we go out several times a day. We toss them produce and food to get them up, and people can see them and ask, and ask us questions. And then we have a lesser-known pig species that people probably haven't seen before, and those are our peccaries, or Chacoan peccaries. Um, they're an endangered species of peccary. They're found in Central South America. There's about 3,000 estimated left in the wild, and the population here in North America is, is about 100. Um, so we have a male and a female. The male's name is Harvey. He's five years old. And then we have Tammy, who's 18 years old. And um, she's highly recommended to be a mom. She has really good genes that have not been represented very well in the population. Um, but there's two things going against their um, family making. Um, Harvey is a hand-raised male. So he would much rather be next to the keepers than with Tammy. And since Tammy's 18 years old, she really doesn't want anything to do with the hand-raised male in her habitat. Um, they do really well together. Um, they do snuggle up together and whatnot. But when it comes to family planning, they are just not on the same page. Um, but they're a pig species, so they are very smart. We do training with them. They can target train, know how to get on a scale. Um, and Harvey's great because whenever we walk by the exhibit, he comes running out of the bushes and we can <laughs> interpret that behavior to the guests and tell them all about this cool animal that they probably never knew existed before. Now I noticed something. Mm -hmm. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Sure. Um, hoofstock keepers have been the most of the people that I've talked to. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them are the ones who are the, the most animal focused and least guest focused. Mm -hmm. And you seem very guest focused. Uh, that important to you to be able to educate and teach people about these species? Yeah, I think it's a huge part of our job and our responsibility working at a zoo. I mean, these are animals that are um, representing their cousins out in the wild. And I've always felt that if you get people close enough 
to an animal to care about that animal. Then they might change their behavior and they might, you know, recycle that can or maybe plant a butterfly garden or, or donate to a conservation fund. doesn't have to be necessarily for peccaries or for giraffe, but if it does change their behavior for the better, I think that's, uh, we've done our job if we've done that. So I always like to engage with the guests and talk to them. Uh, I think it's real important for our career. Good. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I try to, I try to remind people of that narrative a lot on this podcast. I yes. think that is really important. Um, there's still, I think, so many people who think that zookeepers are zookeepers because y'all can't really handle people and would rather be with animals. And yeah. I think we'd all rather be with animals. <laughs> like, if I had to choose one, I'm choosing the, the, the pigs over the humans. Of but, course. You know. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, we all have the same interests here, so our, for we all tolerate each other as coworkers because <laughs> we're all here for the same reason. Um, but, yeah, uh, if you're going to work with animals, you got to work well with people, too. It goes hand in hand if you're going to do a good job at it, for sure. So do you feel that, I mean, obviously there are some charismatic hoofstock species, giraffes, mm -hmm. everybody loves giraffes, rhinos, yes. everybody loves rhinos, but you know, we're talking about pigs yes. and we're talking about, you know, weird little, a lot of the hoofstock species are, are almost indistinguishable for a lot of guests. Correct. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you say Sitatunga and people are like, oh look, it's a cow. Yeah. And, it's a fancy deer. Yeah. yeah whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, um, you know, so do you feel that that puts those animals at like a disadvantage or do you think that it can make it more exciting for people to then learn about something they didn't know or, you know, that's interesting to say. Um, I think it's always, if you're coming to the zoo, hopefully you're here because you want to learn about animals and be exposed to animals and whatnot. Um, but in my past experience, especially at Disney, um, the people that were on my tours or staying at the resort or came to the park, um, wanted to be there. They booked that vacation six months ago and they probably thought about it every day since. So I always felt it was obligated to, you know, give them the best time that they had there and like, hey, look at this cool animal. It's a Sitatunga. It lives in the swamp. It's a piece, it's a hoofstock that lives in water. And that's like unheard of for hoofstock because you should not have them in water because it's bare for their feet. <laughs> um, so, and they're adorable and they look like little cartoon characters. So um, it's always neat to show people something new that they didn't know existed before. And yeah, um, one of my coworkers used to joke, it was like people came to the zoo just for the sexy animals, just for the, the rhinos and the okapi and, and the giraffe. But um, there are really cool animals. And if you take more than 30 seconds and actually watch them and see their cool behaviors and realize, you know, that they're sexually dimorphic. And this male over here is actually doing a mating strut for the female that's hiding in the bushes. Uh, it's always cool to point that sort of stuff out to people. Absolutely. One of my favorite statistics I learned last year is the average zoo guest spends 17 seconds at an exhibit. 17. <laughs> I agree with that. And it kills me. Um, mm -hmm. And, I'll, I, you know, I um, my favorite animal is the red panda. Okay. So I spend a lot of time with red pandas. And I have had people walk up to, you know, a red panda exhibit and see the panda sleeping and say, man, I've, I've been here 10 times and I have only ever seen this panda sleeping and then walk away. And 30 seconds later, the panda is up and jogging around and eating bamboo and being mm -hmm. adorable and doing what they do. And I mean, do they sleep a lot? Yes, they're red pandas. But I'm constantly amazed. Well, well, yes, you walked up when it was napping and you left. Of course, that's what it was doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. people are just like, you feel like they're on a mission and they're just get zipping around the zoo. But yeah, you just got to take your time and relax for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, what's next for you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've been in the field since about 97, 98. I've got about 20 years under my belt. Um, I've been here at the Central Florida Zoo for almost six months now. Um, and I love working at a smaller zoo. I knew going to Disney that it was this giant corporation and whatnot. And I was able to get a lot of experience there, management experience, exposed to a ton of different species to work with, um, learned about theme park management. Um, but I miss the small town zoo feel. I miss having volunteers and interns and fundraisers, things of that nature. So, um, Getting this job here was super exciting for me, and I'm loving every minute of it. Been here six months. I have an amazing team, and I've got to learn all of the other teams here. Um, 
in the future here, you know, I would love to get into upper zoo management. I like leadership, leadership theory, practicing all of that, helping people enjoy their jobs, making their jobs better for them. Um, so that's where I see myself going for sure. Very cool. Leadership is actually very important to me and something I love talking about on the pod a little bit. So cool. um, do you have any uh, books or any particular recommendations or just any leadership um thoughts that you'd like to share about what it means to be a good leader and how to to do that um i think my leadership person i go to a lot or that i model myself about is simon simon sinek yes yes absolutely i'm a big fan of his and i've applied a lot of his techniques um when i was manager um and got a lot of good results um i read a book and taken a test um it was strengths finder um, where you find out kind of what categories that you're really good at. Are you good at learning things or being an extrovert, things of that nature? Um, that's a test you take after you read this book. Um, so I really like to uh, stress and develop people's strengths. So like on our, our team now, we have certain people that are really good with the education aspect of the job. We have other people that are really good with big projects and um, using heavy machinery. And I like to foster um, those sorts of things and like, hey, you can use a skid steer. Like you're in charge now, you're in point. Like what other projects do you want to do with that? Um, so I really believe in fostering people's strengths um and that reinforces such a good job when they do it because you know that they're going to do a good job um so that's kind of how i like to lead and i also think it's all about um getting trust with the people that you're leading and follow through even if it's hey i know you mentioned this i can't act on it right now but let's revisit it in two weeks um, just letting them know that you heard it you registered it it's not going to work out now, but we'll, we'll go back and do it again. I think that follow-through is really important. Absolutely. I agree, yeah. Uh, the book that I always mention when these conversations come up is uh, Leaders Eat Last. Yes. And, yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Very good, right? Yes. Absolutely. That is, that is always the thing I remind myself of, um, especially since oftentimes when I'm in a leadership role, I'm, I'm out on tour as a musician, and it's time for dinner, and I'm hungry, and it is a literal reminding myself to eat last, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the book goes deeper than that. But so it's kind of nice how sometimes it can literally just be like, all right, go get the guys. Come on. <laughs> I know what you mean, but in the end, it's all worthwhile. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. What kind of conservation projects are you involved in here? Um, right now, you know, with our peccaries, we definitely want to see them um, reproduced. We don't really think that they are going to, but um, we would love to. Um, our greater one-horned rhino, PJ, he is an artist. Um, so we can give him a canvas, um, and using his upper lip, he can make some abstract art. Um, we also can take uh, imprints of his skin and his skin folds, um, and we put those on canvases as well. So those also um, will be sold, So and we would donate those to Azac. Um, and they will sell them for conservation efforts and such. I believe last year the zoo did a lot of fundraising for all of the um, fires that happened in Australia, and they sent some money down there. Um, in the past, I've been involved with um, sea turtle conservation, leading night walks along Vero Beach, and all of that money got donated to um, the Sea Turtle Fund along the East Coast there. So. That's always been a big passion of mine, too, sea turtles. That's actually really cool. This morning, mm-hmm. before driving across the state, um, I was at uh, one of the um, beaches uh, on the Gulf with Moat Marine Lab doing oh, awesome. uh, sea turtle nest checks, and, and we found a new nest, and cool. we got to market and all that. Yeah, sea turtles were my OG animal that I fell in love with. Gotcha. So, yeah, okay. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, have you ever participated in, or, or does the zoo participate in Bowling for Rhinos at all? I believe they do Bowling for Rhinos. I know we have an AZEC chapter here, but being so new and coming out of COVID, I don't Fair. know if that's on anyone's radar right now. 
Um, but Azak is going through some changes here because we've had some turnover in staff. So things might have slowed down a little bit because of COVID and staff changes. But I know that they are active here for sure. Very cool. Very cool. I just know with the, with the famous rhino here, it might, you know. Yes, I'm sure we have. Um, but yeah, being the new guy here, I'm not 100% sure. Fair, fair. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, w- were there any other animals that you wanted to mention? Um, we have our barnyard animals here okay, in our collection. Great, yeah. So again, um, guest-focused area. The guests can feed them and they can touch them. Uh, we've got six goats, a llama, an alpaca, two donkeys, and our four chickens. So uh, so into these chickens. I do. We all love our chickens. <laughs> there are our avian representatives. Yes, we have four females. Um, we do get eggs from them. And we give them to our nutrition center. They hard boil them, and then um, they feed them out to the other animals here at the zoo. Nice. So our chickens are in their keep, for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. Yes. Um, and what are their names? Um, we have Morticia and Wednesday, nice. and then we have Lily and Marilyn. Okay. Yes. So Munster's theme, and yes, yeah, yes, very cool. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no, it's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. I know there's so much poop in my career. <laughs> um, okay, so the worst smelling poop, I would have to say. I have a strong stomach. I don't usually gag or anything, um, but if anyone's ever worked with Abyssinian ground hornbills, a large kind of turkey-sized bird, from Africa. They're strict meat eaters. Um, in my experience, they only poop once a day. And that's first thing in the morning after they jump off their night perch. Um, so they eat mice and rats and all sorts of prepared meat and insects and whatever they find out in the, in the field, snakes, frogs, whatever. So all that cooks in there for like 24 hours. <laughs> so when they do poop in the morning, it, uh, it's the most rancid smell that I've ever smelled them uh, during the Twice a year when you would have to get fecal samples from them to submit from the vet, that was always a challenge for me because it's just so pungent and so just gross. Oh. So that's my that's probably my gross poop story. Poop story. For sure. Um, and then working at Disney, we measured uh, the fecal output of one of our bold elephants over 24 hours, and it was um, something like 1,700 pounds of manure that, that he alone generated yeah what do you do to move 1700 pounds of manure it's all wheelbarrows and keeper power and some go in like john deere gators or toros but it all goes into a giant dumpster uh, that they would take away every other day because we would fill it up <laughs> amazing well thank you so much for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it you're welcome my pleasure All right, so you can check out the Central Florida Zoo on the social medias. On Instagram, it's at CentralFLZoo, or just search for the Central Florida Zoo on Facebook. Also, their website, as you may have guessed, is centralfloridazoo.org. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of my patrons, especially my Red Panda-level patrons, PJ Bevan and Lara Shank. Again, you can go to patreon.com slash rossafari to find out how to get your name said in every episode, or at least every episode that I, you know, remember to say your name in. Fortunately, people that are red pandas are pretty, pretty willing to accept that I'm not perfect at this, and I appreciate y'all so much. And now, without further ado, the moment you've all been waiting for... The Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.